Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast, Mandy Rhodes speaks to James Mitchell, Professor of Public Policy at Edinburgh University, about the upcoming SNP conference. But first, I'm joined by my colleagues Andrew Learmonth and Margaret Taylor to discuss what's been happening this week. And there's currently a debate on in the Parliament ahead of a vote on vaccine passports later on today. Margaret, it's fair to say um, vaccine passports are dividing opinion. Do, and I guess it, it's kind of fair enough when you consider that uh, the, the vaccination, although we're all very much encouraged to get vaccinated, it's not it's not a mandatory thing. And then later on down the line, the government comes out with something saying, well, if you want to get into this event, that event, you want to go here, you want to go there, you have to prove that you've had the vaccine. Um, I think I'm right in saying that uh, while it was mooted that perhaps instead of having a vaccine passport, you could show that you were you had a negative test but I think I, I saw um, earlier today that, that that was going to be removed from it you have to actually have the vaccine passport so it, it's kind of saying to people yeah we'd really like you to have a vaccine you don't have to but you'll not be able to participate in society if you don't have one and then, of course that's before you get into the debate about I mean there's a lot of chat about nightclubs isn't there so um but there, there is no statutory definition of what a nightclub actually is so then <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to go down this route that we saw previously when it was like, what what is a cafe? Um, sh- should you be serving a scotch egg to be able to, <laughs> to yeah. go into a place? Uh, so, yeah, yeah that, that's going to become problematic as well. Yeah, it's going to be great uh, having a bunch of uh, people who are probably in their 40s and 50s defining what a nightclub is. I think that's really uh, <laughs> going to be really helpful for everyone involved, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just imagining a lot of uh, a lot of nightclubs suddenly putting a big um, you know curtain around their dance floor or something and pretending they're a pub, you know, <laughs> um, to you know to get to get out of it. But but yeah, I mean, would you not, Margaret, if you were going to a nightclub? I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to a nightclub. It's probably about 15 years ago. But um, oh, sure. All oh, right. Yeah, I know. Um, but. Would you not? Would you not prefer to know that everybody there has been has been double jabbed? I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, personally, I have no problem with getting a vaccine passport myself. I've been double vaccinated. I'm fine to prove that if it makes everyone else feel more comfortable. If it makes me feel more comfortable, but I guess there are reasons why people don't want to. I mean, you can't really second guess why someone might not have the vaccine. Like people mm-hmm. have good valid reasons for not having it. And if they're going to be excluded from society because of that, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I would feel happy to think that people all around me had been vaccinated. But at the same time, I wouldn't like to think that people were being excluded when they had a valid reason for not having that. And of course, it remains to be seen like how the technology, etc., is going to work. I mean, there are people, you see stories practically every day of someone who might have had one jag in England, one jag in Scotland, but they can't get the proof of it. So yeah. Are people going to be excluded even though they, they by rights should have the passport? It's tricky. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, do, do you think uh, do you think it's been used sort of surreptitiously as a bit of a stick to try and encourage people that so far have held out getting their vaccine, maybe maybe younger people to to encourage them to do so. Yeah, so I think I think it, it definitely is. I think Nicholas Sturgeon has sort of uh, referenced the, the French vaccine passport. I can't remember what it's called. Pass sanitaire. Pass sanitaire. Well done. Um, that was a great accent as well. That was really good. Merci. Really good. Merci. Um, 
But we saw, and obviously that's it's much much stricter the, the French one because it's, you can't even go to a restaurant without having your your, your pass sanitaire. Um, and so when it was brought in in France, when, when Emmanuel Macron brought it on, there was a huge, you know, uh, rush of of young people going to, to to sign up. So I think there's there's maybe some optimism that the same thing might happen here because you know it's still predominantly younger people who haven't quite yet got around to having their their jags. Um, there was really interesting. Uh, uh, Twitter thread from Professor Stephen Riker this morning. He is, you know, the a member of uh, Sage, um, you know, uh, St Andrews University academic who specialises in, in um, sort of behaviour and, and, and stuff like that. And he says, you know, there are going to be some benefits to this. We might see a, a bit of a, a spike, but you know, it's kind of it's not necessarily going to to be as massively effective uh, as we think it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I think I think there's definitely there's definitely a, a carrot um, type approach here. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I agree. I agree with Margaret. I'm 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 totally happy to have the the jag myself. But it does make me feel uncomfortable that there will be people who, for whatever reason, haven't had mm-hmm. their, their jags mm-hmm. who are now sort of effectively, you know. Uh, uh, Banned from from yeah heading the dance floor yeah I mean uh, Margaret um, Andrew mentioned France and in France they had huge demonstrations after they brought this this pass in I mean can do you think we'll see something similar in Scotland or will we just kind of meekly go all right fine then let's uh, get on with our lives or do you think do you think people are genuinely upset about it I think people are and people are a bit more inclined to get out and protest about things these days aren't they but I, I... Whether the protest about that, I don't know. I think there might just be more apathy. Like it's interesting you're asking about um, getting more young people to go out and have a job, and I do think that is part of the reason for doing it, or or perhaps one of the drivers. But it's just adding more confusion, isn't it? There's so much confusion to every single announcement that's made, and this whole thing about nightclubs and venues and this and that. Like it's just. You know, people switch off. So I, I don't know whether it will encourage them. They might just think, well, whatever, I'll go to the pub instead of a nightclub. Yeah. <laughs> I'll dance in my living room with my mates. Like, <laughs> rather well, than trying to make sense of these, like, incredibly complicated yeah. rules. Well, we've all, got, we've all got pretty used to spending a lot of time at home over the last 18 months. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's the, what's the COVID situation in general looking like? I mean, Nicola Sturgeon was saying yesterday there's sort of room for cautious optimism but at the same time she said the case numbers are, are as high as they've been since the start of the pandemic yeah yeah i mean i i think again it's difficult to read too much into the numbers at this stage isn't it like i, I think that there was news today that the numbers are leveling out somewhat but it's still not fully translated into knowing what's happening on the hospital front i mean mm-hmm. the numbers there I think are rising. Is that well, there's usually, I mean, I think there's usually a lag, isn't there? So, you know, because it takes people a couple of weeks to get seriously ill enough to go to hospital. So, yeah. um, and I saw comments from Jackie Bailey earlier saying she was really concerned about uh, care home numbers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. And of course, the universities are going back next week. So, mm. I'm yeah. thinking probably we're going to see another spike, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, like last year. Yeah, definitely. And Andrew, you were hopefully it won't be anything like last year. 
No, I mean, Andrew, you were, you were following uh, FMQs. You were talking about uh, ambulances. Um, the Tories brought up uh, weights for ambulances. And that's, I mean, that's a real indication of the fact that the NHS is struggling to cope right now, isn't it? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So there's been a, a, an average wait um, of six hours for a, an ambulance, which is pretty concerning, really, isn't it? But part of the reason for that um, is because of hospitals being under pressure, because of, you know, patients who need discharged because it's taking longer to get them discharged to get them out. You know, you, you basically have ambulances sitting, queuing up outside hospitals, missing two or three 999 calls because they're waiting for a patient to get discharged so they can bring someone else in or take someone else somewhere else. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 um, you've got Unison who are now, you know, calling for the ambulance service to declare a state of emergency, um, which would then sort of force other sort of healthcare providers to, to, to effectively react to that, you know, by pitching tents up outside hospitals and sort of triaging and treating people there. So, um, yeah, it does feel like we're, even though the rate of infection is 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 coming down ever so slightly, it, it does feel like we're we're still in the, the precipice of, you know, a not great situation. Yeah. Because the other thing, of course, as well as as well as all the students coming back, is is we're going to go into winter again, aren't we? And it was this there was this time last year that 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 we in Glasgow were 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 put into a temporary lockdown, which yeah. has not lasted months and months and months. So, yeah, yeah, it doesn't feel great. No, I mean you've been uh, you've been writing about the the SNP conference this week, Andrew, which which kicks off uh, tomorrow. Um, there's been a couple of uh, opinion polls out today ahead of that, and uh, I mean, what, first of all, what are they what are they saying about independence? And do you think that independence is likely to dominate uh, proceedings at the conference over the next few days? Yeah, so we've had two two polls out today, and they, they kind of uh, show that Scotland is still pretty split when it comes to independence. So this let's just deal with the opinion one, the opinion one, uh, which was carried out for Sky News, um, and that put uh, support for yes on fifty one percent when Stoke was removed, and, and no on on forty nine percent. So it's actually that's actually the first poll I think since April to put yes in the lead, even though it's only you know margin of error yeah. um, type lead. The, the last poll for opinion had on, on yes and no and 50% each. Um, there was a couple of interesting things when you dig down into this, you know, that it showed that 13% of people who voted no in 2014 would now vote yes. Um, I think it was just 8% of yes voters had gone the other way. Uh, no voters are now more likely to call themselves undecided rather than yes voters. Um, but there was some good news. There's some great news, in fact, for the SNP now, which shows that the SNP are still uh, uh, receiving quite substantial public support. I, I think you know, there's a Westminster election tomorrow. 51% of voters said they would back the SNP. You know, the same again, similar numbers for for the Hollywood election. Um, uh, interestingly, though, uh, they also looked at personal opinion ratings and satisfaction or happiness with Nicola Sturgeon has gone down right. uh, by four points, but she is still, by some considerable margin, the most popular politician in Scotland. I think her trust rating is now up plus twenty-two. Uh, uh, conversely, Boris Johnson has had a bit of a boost. His rating has gone up nine points, wow. um, but despite that, he's still polling at uh, minus thirty-four. So it's <laughs> you know it's 
this is maybe not great news for Boris Johnson. He's he's slightly less unpopular than he was. But you know. yeah, well, they made they made a they, I was just going to say they made a really great point in their analysis where they said you know if there was a referendum tomorrow, it's kind of hard to know who would lead the no side because. Nobody really likes any any. I mean, when you look at Nicola Sturgeon's uh, um, favorability compared to you know likes of Douglas Ross or 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 Boris Johnson, she's completely off the charts. But is that yeah, absolutely? It doesn't it's great, or is it because the others are? Because I mean, I, people are kind of somewhat tired of, of the government she leads, aren't they? But yet she still does really well. So the question they asked was, you know, how much how much do you trust mm. Nicola Sargent? And and you know, and so I think it was like sixty percent said they, they trust was thirty percent said they did, which gives you the the, the trust mm. rating of, of plus twenty two. So I think maybe it's that she's more trustworthy than than someone like Boris Johnson is, or, or even you know even Anna Sauer or, or, or Douglas Ross is. But yeah, I think it's, it is going to be really interesting who will lead the the no campaign. Well, we're talking of the no campaign. So the other poll came out from was commissioned by Scotland in Union, who are the pro UK group campaign group. Um, they had a servation poll. Now they, they do something interesting. They, they ask a non-standard question. So every other poster says, ask the same question that you're asked in 2014. Should Scotland be an independent country? Yes, no. But Scotland and Union, what they ask is, you know, should Scotland uh, remain in the UK or leave the UK? So they sort of try and sort of co-op the Brexit question. Um, and for that, um, they found that, let me just get this up, uh, they found that 50% of the people in Scotland would vote to remain part of the UK, while only 40% would vote to leave the, the UK. So, I mean, I think I think it's unlikely that that will be the sort of question that is asked in the, uh, in the referendum before the end of 2023, if that's when we have it. Um, but I think it just kind of shows that we're going to be having a lot more uh, arguments about exactly what people are asked um, and it's like, so SNP conference yeah you're right SNP conference starts on on Friday this week um uh, there's uh, quite a lot of stuff going on in but as you said I think it will be the questions over independence which will will definitely dominate the the, the media coverage we've got two debates happening on the Sunday um I think one of the key questions here is going to be about timing. So Nicholas Sturgeon earlier this week said, you know, we hope to have uh, uh, NDRF2, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, uh, by the end of 2023, um, once the COVID crisis is over. So now the big question is, you know, how to exactly do you find the COVID crisis as being over? Well, exactly, exactly. Um, Well, we're 18 months in, we're almost two years into the COVID crisis and it's not abated (laughs) Well, Boris, Boris, uh, Boris Johnson said it was going to be dealt with in 12 weeks right at the start. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we all thought that, didn't we? It does. It does. Definitely. We, we've got to think, you know, the, the vote might be then in 2023, but the campaign will, yeah. will effectively start. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, so you kind of have a couple of questions uh, over here. So let me just uh, get one of the motions up, which is, you know, um, is to look at, um, uh, we could just cut out this sort of awkward silence. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, um, so the first one deals with, you know, talks about timing and it says that, uh, uh, that the decision or when to hold a referendum should be determined by data-driven criteria about the clear end to the public health crisis. Um, so you know, that's going to lead to debate exactly what data-driven crisis 
the data driven criteria needs to show exactly to go this is no good crisis yeah yeah i mean because the the one thing the polls that you're 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 right in saying the polls show that the public is completely split on the issue of whether scotland should be independent or not but one thing that there does seem to be a kind of majority view on is that uh, we shouldn't have an election we shouldn't have a referendum anytime soon most people most people want to wait and even though the end of 2023 is still two years down the line. As you say, the referendum campaign will, will get underway in earnest, you would imagine, before too long, if that is the case. And a, a lot of people might find that quite distasteful given some of the other stuff that's going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I think what the SNP would say to that, you know, is that they stood explicitly at the, the election back there in May with a commitment to having a referendum. And, you know, they... They formed the government. They became the party that, that, that formed the government, the largest party in Scotland. So they would say they have a mandate now to, to which is, you know, to hold that election at the time as, as they see fit. So, yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting. So um, I, I'm not entirely convinced it will be held by the end of 2023. If I was to, if I was to bet on it, I don't know that I would necessarily say that. Um, but I think, you know, who knows? Who knows? Well, it kind of depends what happens with COVID. Yeah. God knows where we're going to be. There's going to be like however many more strains still to come. So, well, that's the that's the thing. Nobody nobody really knows uh, where we're going to be with COVID in, in, in six weeks. Never mind six months or, or two years. But then we had to, we did have a general election. Uh, sorry, a Scottish election, Hollywood election mm-hmm. there in the middle of the COVID crisis, and that seemed to go okay. So. That's true. Yeah. No council elections next year. Sorry. So I was just going to say, Margaret, since we've we've uh, returned from recess, we've had we've had quite a bit of choice heckling in the parliament. Uh, we saw we saw um, a Tory MSP uh, told off last week and, and ultimately apologised for a comment directed uh, the way of uh, the first minister. But yesterday there was a bit of controversy after uh, I think it was Lorna Slater, the the, the Scottish Greens co-leader. Uh, somebody referred to her uh, as a country bumpkin. Now, do you, do you think do you think that is beyond the pale? Well, it, it, um, it's a little bit more light-hearted than what the first minister had to contend with last week. Um, I mean, country bumpkin. I don't know. It, it, it was said in a pejorative way, wasn't it? But how offended can you really be? Well, <laughs> do, do we? I mean, do we? Do we run the risk of getting to? A, getting to a position where you can't basically heckle anything from yeah, across yeah. the benches. I mean, it's not it, it's not nasty or, like, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose it's a dig at her green credentials, isn't it? But, like, that, that's a good thing, surely. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that there's a, a chance you could be somewhat oversensitive, perhaps. Like, it's not a particularly nasty... <laughs> nasty slur, is it? No. <laughs> Andrew, do you think some of our uh, MSPs are, are too quick to take offence? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saving that one for last. I mean, you need to pick the battles, <laughs> don't you? If you get really upset by country yeah, bumpkin, totally. then like, if, if someone comes at you with something really offensive, like, how do you yeah. react to that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I I grew up in the country, yeah, so I, you know, I... I embrace Yeah, I, I think I can... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's company bumpkin. I've never really heard the phrase company bumpkin outside of like you know a copy of Bino. Yeah, it's, it's quite. It's quite two Ronnies or something. Like, yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's very Warsaw gummage, which you know is is a bit uh, harsh. You know, I, just, I think if 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 she'd been called the minister for Jukter or Jukter, I'd have been okay with that. Yeah. You know, I'm okay with. 
I'm a Chukter, yeah. So, I'm a Chukter, happy to. Chukter, Chukter is a, a badge of honour then. That's not a pejorative term. No, not if you are one. <laughs> not exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, on that happy note of consensus, uh, thanks both. And now uh, Mandy Rhodes speaks to James Mitchell. James, we last spoke during the election, so in May, and, you know, I think then we were feeling pretty (laughs) grim anyway about how politics was shaping up and how it felt. I mean, I think probably we both sort of said, look, the SNP have been in power for so long, they're very likely to win this election, they will win this election, it's about by how much. But also it strangely felt almost like a fag end government and we've come out of the election, the SNP have won it, they didn't win a majority just by one seat. I just wonder how you feel about it now. Well, I think I still take the view that the SNP has run out of steam and it looks as if they're kind of looking to the Greens to give them some ideas. Um, And I think it's much, much the case that this is more of the same from before the election. Not a huge amount has frankly changed. Um, And so I I, I suspect that, that really had that election not taken place, we'd be in very similar place that we're in today. It's quite an odd situation, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people felt after the election a bit of a kind of, oh, well, that's that then. And let's move on and see what else can happen. But we've got this Green Deal now. I mean, the point I've made in my column in this uh, recent issue of the magazine is actually the SNP were in power pretty well anyway with the SNP for the last 14 years. There wasn't, well, you reminded me actually, there was a formal agreement of sorts when Alex Salmond um, took them into the 2007 election and came out of there with a minority administration. So they have actually been in this together, haven't they? Yeah, and the relationship between the Greens and the SNP has been pretty close for quite a long time. And in particular, I think, between uh, Patrick Harvey and Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, I think they've got a lot uh, in common, and I think they share an agenda in some areas. In fact, I would argue that the Greens and Pat Carvey are closer to Nicola Sturgeon's views on some issues than she is to the rest of her party. Um, so, in a way, this is a kind of formalising of an existing relationship. Um, obviously, it's kind of different from that which was agreed in 2007, but it's still a long, long way away from a formal coalition, a coalition which would involve not just a selected number of issues on which they agreed. Because if you look at the document and look at what they are agreeing on and where they're going to work together, well, they were already agreeing on that. So they've agreed to agree where they already agree, but they've also identified those areas where they disagree. So they've agreed to to disagree on those issues. So in a funny kind of way, the kind of big change that's taken place is not policy. It's about giving to junior ministerial offices and some of the other things that are associated with that, SPADs and such like, to the Greens, rather than any major policy changes or innovations. I don't really see, um, as you would expect in, say, a full-blown coalition, compromises and people kind of having to move one way or the other. You know, if, if you go back, for example, to the UK 2010 election and the the, the negotiations and the agreements between the Tories and Lib Dems, there were some significant changes that cost the Liberal Democrats a great deal because, of course, they, they had all talked about the kind of um, uh, 
tuition fees issue in, in England. And of course, they had to abandon that for, for the sake of the, the coalition. Not really seeing either the Greens or the SNP abandoning much. There is maybe more emphasis on some issues and the language perhaps is much more green in the agreement. But actually, fundamentally, I'm not convinced it's such a big change from the kind of effective, informal working together that we've been seeing for quite some time, but particularly, I think, uh, uh, under Nicola Sturgeon. So given that there, you, you know, you mentioned the 2010 coalition and given that there's almost an inherent risk in any of these agreements of harm to either side, A, why would the SNP want to do this? And, and you know, we all see or view Nicola Sturgeon as, as quite tight in terms of keeping control, keeping discipline. Why would she do it? But also, where do you see the harms that might happen? I think... Um the, the the fact that the SNP failed to get that overall majority, that was a great aim, the ambition in the election. They just failed to get that. And, of course, there was always a question as to what would be a mandate for independence. I think most people took the view, as long as it was a majority of MSPs. But the truth of the matter is, having failed to get a majority of an overall majority of SNP MSPs kind of puts a dent in that claim to have a mandate. But this formalisation of the agreement the SNP hope and the Greens hope kind of makes their mandate stronger or more visible. Um, I'm not convinced of that, but that, that I think is, is part of it. I think there is always a, a, a danger with any such uh, coalitions or agreements and so on and so forth. And the Lib Dems suffered horrendously because of the agreement with the Tories. But then it doesn't always work out that way. We tend to expect that the minor party to an agreement suffers most. But that, again, doesn't always happen. If you look at 2003 Holyrood elections, you know, at the end of that first parliament, 99 to 2003, Labour, Liberal Democrats, the Liberal Democrats increased their share of the vote, and MSPs. So they came out of it quite well in 2003. So it's not inconceivable that the Greens could come out of this well. What they want, what they want, I think, is to be seen that they're serious, that they're, you know, they're not running away from power, that they're not just going to indulge in the kind of oppositional politics, which I think, you know, any political party has to eventually do. I think for the SNP, though, I think it's all about the, the, the independence issue. But also, I suppose that there are some issues, um, and no doubt we'll come on to those, on which uh, Nicola Sturgeon probably is closer to the Greens than, than at least a section of her own party. Maybe not the whole party, but a section of the own party. Um, and I guess this is also kind of building up to what they hope will eventually be, and I stress eventually be, um, agreements in terms of any independence referendum. So I think there's all sorts of factors going on there. But also, yeah, it's, it, it kind of gives that message that we're willing to speak, we're willing to be cooperative and so on and so forth. And that that doesn't do you any harm. You, do, you don't think you're crediting them all with a bit too much, you know, here that this is the SNP that have been so, ca- well, Nicola Sturgeon's SNP, so cautious about independence that she then puts independence at the forefoot by going into bed, if you like, with the Greens. You don't think cynically it was more to do with they're tired, they're fed up having to negotiate every budget, they're worried about votes of no confidence. I mean, you don't think that perhaps that final vote of no confidence that John Swinney faced that maybe an agreement was made with the Greens at that point? It's possible. I mean, I, I, I don't know. But I do think that, that you know, in a way, the, the talk about independence is something that each party 
would be happy with. Each party supports independence and supports a referendum. But I think each party also knows that they've got to kind of play along with this. We're still in a phony war situation. And of course, what we've seen for a long time now is that Nicola Sturgeon marches our troops to the top of the hill promising a referendum coming very soon and we've got a mandate and then has to march them all down again. I, I get a sense that this is yet another marching the troops to the top of the hill and I don't think anything's going to happen. And I think the Greens are quite happy to go along with that. But, you know, it, 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 I, I, it could be the case that the fear of a vote of no confidence, but again, I'm not convinced that that's a, a you know, a, a real fear. I mean, or rather, it's maybe a real fear, but I don't think it's justified. I don't think there's much prospect. I think the Greens would almost certainly support them. Unless, of course, it was something really dramatic. And in which case, of course, if something really dramatic was to happen, the Greens would just withdraw support and, and, yeah. and vote against it. So, so I, I, it's a difficult one. It's not an obvious reason for having, I mean, there's no obvious reason for having this agreement. I mean, the SNP could have quite comfortably carried on with the kind of informal support of the Greens as they were doing in the last parliament. I mean, there's a couple of things in there, James, it, because it's quite a recent conversion for the Greens, Scottish Greens, to be a party of independence, isn't it? Yeah, reasonably recent. I mean, it's it's certainly, obviously, you know, the, the, the former leader, the first MSP, um, it, it remains hostile to independence. And, and it's interesting, I, I, I was speaking at an event not that long ago, um, and it was uh, an audience of largely English people, one of whom was, as, was an English Green, and he couldn't get his head round and couldn't understand why any Green Party would support a nationalist government or, uh, or, or a nationalist idea like independence. Um, but I think what you've seen in the Greens has been the way in which, you know, the leadership, the new leadership is very committed to that. And, and, and I think so long as there's a perception in the Greens that independence would further the Green cause, then they would support it. In other words, I think the Greens where they support independence, do so for instrumental reasons. They believe it's the best way of getting rid of Trident, of having a much more green economy, um, avoiding the kind of um, approach of the UK government. Whereas for the SNP, independence is, a, is, is an end in itself. It's, I feel like, a principle. It's not an instru instrumental uh, issue. So, yeah, I think there is... There's a lot in that. Um, whether or not, of course, an independent Scotland would be as green as the Greens think or hope is another matter. But I think that's 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 what they're that's what they're certainly hoping for. And a number of times, I think you've hinted at an area we will delve into, which is, uh, I mean, when this deal was made, huge number of SNP and Green supporters immediately hailed this as the agreement that will, would allow the GRA reform um, to go through and the issue of self-ID, which has really exercised the minds of lots and lots of people and caused a lot of bitterness. I mean, you you said there about Nicola perhaps having more in common with Patrick Harvey than some of our uh, people in her own party. This is also a man that we saw quite torrid stories about from Andy Whiteman, who left the Greens over this very issue, over the, what he called the intolerance of even being able to discuss this issue with Patrick Harvey. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, when the Greens were discussing this, a lot of the members were particularly concerned about the SNP on this issue. But they saw the SNP as not being up for the kind of GRE position that Patrick Harvey and indeed Nicola Sturgeon support. So there was a kind of suspicion that there was this kind of 
socially conservative element in the SNP, as they see it, as they see it, let me stress. And, 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 and I understand that more questions were asked about that than about independence, for example. Um, and that's interesting. I, 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 I think that the GRE issue is causing trouble across the globe. I mean, it's really tricky because you've got clashing principles um, um, at issue here. And it's a kind of issue that good government negotiates and discusses and brings people along. I think the problem with Nicola Sturgeon is the kind of nature of her politics. Everything's black and white. And she just jumped on this issue and she she saw it in terms of human rights and so on and so forth, which is, you know, there's not, it's not entirely wrong. It's there is, There's a validity in that argument. But she didn't think through the implications and the problems and the difficulties with, with this issue. And I think she got herself into a bit of hot water on inside her party, potentially. I mean, she was lucky because she still got that massive groundswell of support and she got away with it. And I think what now we've got is a, this, the, these two parties in which the leadership are deeply committed to changes, but within one of the parties, there's a sizable element that has doubts and concerns. And I think that the real problem that will arise is probably not between Nicola Sturgeon and Patrick Harvey and the others in, in, in the Green Group, but maybe depending on how she plays it um, with her own party. But she's got to balance that. She's got to keep Harvey on board, but she's also got to keep an eye on her own party on this issue. And that could be the real challenge on that issue and indeed perhaps on other issues as well. So it's a tricky issue. Um, and, you know, in politics, you know, you, you do get these issues where you either take one side or the other, but on an awful lot of issues, they're really troublesome and difficult and actually negotiate. And I think this is one of these issues. That's my personal view. And I don't think that's been done very well. I think that, you know, it's the, you know, good government thinks ahead and sees the problems, sees the difficulties. It's not all simple. It's difficult. And this is a really difficult area. I mean, it is a strange moment in time, isn't it, when you've got a, a woman who leads the country and is seen as an incredibly good leader and a very good communicator, very good performer, um, has empathy, talks about being a feminist to her fingertips. And yet last week outside Parliament, there were hundreds of women shouting about th this very issue, about the GRA. And, and you know, Patrick Harvey, during the election campaign, had a hashtag attached to him, which was Harvey Hates Women. It's a very strange balancing act that Nicola Sturgeon is going to have to conduct in this. It is. And I think the lesson for her is that, you know, this is an area, and there are many other areas in politics where it's not as clear cut as, as she or any of us would prefer. It's difficult, and you've got to take people with you. Now, that is something that, you know, I think I'm surprised she hasn't learned that by now in politics. But on this issue, you know, she, she blundered into this and she she has damaged herself in sections of the feminist and the women's movement. There's no doubt at all she's been damaged in sections. I'm not saying everywhere, but there's no doubt at all about that. Um, and it, people are asking questions about how committed she is on these issues. And, and it's fair enough. She can certainly point to many of the things that she has done, not least the 50-50 cabinet as evidence of her commitment. But I think she's got to take a lot more care and maybe in future not to rush in to things and, and, and consider, you know, the implications, because at the end of the day, that's what government has to do. You know, campaigning is one thing. Governing does require compromise, listening to the other side and bringing people together. And interestingly, on this issue, people that we would normally have expected to be on the same side 
that's the thing that shocks me most about this is that people who are broadly liberal and and, and and ought to be working together on this are at war. And of course, the real conservative, social conservatives are out there just watching almost with amusement at, the, at this battle that's taking place. I think that is the really hard thing in it, James. I mean, you know, I've been kind of in the thick of all of this as well, but for asking questions. And I think, I don't think I've ever been involved in a discussion around equality where asking questions means you're immediately called a bigot. And that that's probably the very hard thing in this. But I, even as you're talking, I'm thinking we it feels a little bit like the SNP have often blundered into things with very good intentions, but there have been unintended consequences. I mean, name person, I think, mm-hmm. would be mm-hmm. one I would immediately say. I, you know, personally, I think there, that was a very well-intentioned piece of work, but I had hadn't been properly thought through? Yeah, I mean, good intentions are important in politics as a starting point, but you need to also think things through. And, and you know, sometimes you got to recognise that, you know, it's not simple. It's difficult. It's very difficult. And crucially, you've got to bring people with you. You've got to unite people. That is the role of government. You've got to bring people. Now, there are people you'll never bring with you. That's fair enough. But you do make more of an effort. And I, I do, I guess I I often think, and often say this about politics, modern politics, is that too often, I think, too many of our politicians think that standing in my parliament, making a speech on a, on a broad principle, or it's like pulling a lever and the world will change and it will be better. It's a bit messier than that. It's a lot more complex than that. And, and if we could only get away from that kind of lever pulling, kind of performative type of politics and focus more on actual performance, policy performance, I think we'd be in a much healthier healthier place. And leadership is crucial in this respect. And, and that's where I think though she shows some, you know, extraordinary talents in some aspects of leadership, she's not been very good in this. And actually, I suppose it's interesting. I mean, I I think it was because she was tired and perhaps just a bit frustrated with the journalist. But when she made that comment about other things to do with COVID, about she assumed a certain level of intelligence and uh, understanding of her audience. I mean, I think perhaps on these issues, like the GRA, she would perhaps prefer nobody to have an element of intelligence and intellect on it. I mean, I suppose the other thing that really strikes me is we've had the programme for government this week. We had the kind of, if you like, the uh, bells and whistles about the Green Deal and the excitement about that. Then the programme for government this week. We've actually got an SNP conference this weekend and you wouldn't know it, I don't think, would you? Yeah, you wouldn't. And, and, and of course, SNP conferences have changed over the years, but particularly because of COVID. I mean, the nature of the, the pandemic and its impact on political discussion has been immense. So I think that's a major factor. But the truth of the matter is, the SNP, I guess for those of us of a certain age, you can remember SNP conferences of old, has really changed. And, and, and I think the changes started basically in the early years of devolution, but they've been accelerated. Now, they are, I mean, I'm old enough to remember going to Scottish Tory conferences in the late 70s. And I used to always think, God, this is weird. All you're getting are these kind of high hegens coming up and telling the faithful what they want to hear. And there was almost never, there were occasionally debates, there were occasions. I remember sitting through debates on devolution in the Conservative Party back then uh, as an observer. And, 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 and that was unusual. Well, the SNP is now like that, as Labour was, indeed, and as new Labour became. And, and the SNP has really gone even further, I think, in that respect. And, you know, their rallies, 
And and I think that's a big problem in our politics because if you've got 100,000 members, as the SNP claims, you must have immense talent somewhere in that body of people. And are you tapping into that? And are you just frightened of debate? I mean, it, it does seem as if the political leaders of our country fear debate. I actually think one of the things that I would be attracted to in any political party is to hear different views from within it. As we know, they, they must. They're all broad churches. And actually, they would benefit from it. Now, they'll quickly turn around and say it's the fault of folk like Mandy Rhodes and all these journalists because they'll say it's a split. To be honest, that doesn't seem to affect the electorate. The electorate's smart and knows full well that parties are big and that debate is healthy. And and I think we we could do with getting back to that. Or hopefully that doesn't sound like some old man um, looking for a you know a better past, as it were, or a better future. Um, but that that th- th- that's certainly my view that we we need a much more open openness and debate within political parties and between political parties because the talent's there the talent's undoubtedly there the ideas are there they're just not getting the airing uh, you know why would you go to an SNP conference if you were an advocate of, of that of the cause uh, other than to kind of applaud I mean you know it's, you know you're not going to influence much are you well, and also, I mean, you can understand why, I guess, this September um, conference is virtual. There was still the risk, uh, perhaps, of COVID. But they're going to look really out of step with UK parties who are having face-to-face events, but also the SNP second party conference, the annual conference, is going to be in November. And it is also virtual. I mean, you have to suspect it just it kind of feeds well into what Nicola wants. Yes, it does. And, and I think the public don't care. I mean, let's be very clear. I mean, you know, there's not great public appetite to, to, to watching conferences, though I think when people see debates, they, they, they appreciate it's a serious debate. So I don't think the pressure is going to come from the public. Where the pressure may come will be from activists. That may happen eventually. I think so long as the SNP is doing well, that pressure is just not going to be there. I mean, parties will turn on the leader and all the rest when things start to go wrong. And things haven't started to go wrong just yet. Um, I mean, I think there are signs of problems ahead. But, you know, I think at the moment, you know, her position is pretty secure and she can just about do what she likes. I think, though, that, that the question that keeps coming through increasingly is when are you going to deliver that independence referendum? When are you going to deliver that independence? Uh, that frustration will eventually kind of be articulated much more powerfully. And that's when I think she, she might have difficulties. But we're not there yet. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, because that view exists, the last thing she wants to do is to, to give a platform and um, the way she's conducting it. I mean, in a way, it's a rational approach. It's a very rational approach from a leader who's very much a control freak anyway. But it's a rational approach if you don't want to allow a platform to your critics internally. I mean, delivering on an independence referendum is one thing, but delivering on improving Scotland is another, which may also start to cut through. I mean, 14 years in power, National Registers of Scotland um, report out last week, week before Population 2020. It showed that if you are poor, you die 25 years earlier than those living in wealthier areas. I mean, it's shocking. Yeah, and I mean, that was across we, everything. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we've been dealing with these figures for so long now. Um, you know, we remember 
Michael Marnum's report on this. You know, he's the very eminent epidemiologist who, who was writing about this a long time ago. And we, there was a period when it looked like that gap was being closed. If you look over the course of the early years of devolution, now it's widening again. And that's that's scandalous. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not good enough to say it's their fault. There's no doubt at all that policies coming from London are not helping and indeed are harming poorer people. There's no doubt at all about that. But is the Scottish government doing all that it could? The answer to that has to be no. I mean, it could do much more if it was willing and had the courage to take some of these issues on. And this is the problem. I don't think that this government really is willing or has the courage to do that. I'm not pretending it's easy. I'm not pretending that it wouldn't be costly. It would upset certain people, including people who currently vote for the SNP. You know, and I, you know, I've made the point before. As, you know, a middle class parliament for a middle class electorate. And that's what we're seeing. And until and unless we're willing to face up to that, then I think we'll carry on doing so. It's very interesting the way in which the issue of the child payment has, 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 has arisen as an issue. And, the, you know, either the £10, which is kind of a start, but in truth is more performative. It's to be looking as if we care. But if you really want to make a difference, you will be doubling that. Or interestingly, and this is very interesting recent development, is the Labour Party in Scotland and the Sarwar is saying, let's quadruple it, which I thought was one of the more interesting kind of in, 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 in initiatives in, in Scottish politics is clearly trying to take back that agenda which the SNP captured and say, you're, you're full of hot air. Um, let's actually do something. Um, and and, and that that's could be, I think that could be one of the most interesting developments we've seen. If he can carry that on in other areas and get the get noticed in a way that the Labour Party really struggled to get noticed in Scotland these last 14 years or so. I mean, it's interesting on the kind of performative politics theme because, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has a good reputation for empathy and for saying, sorry, and I'm I'm human and you know, I, my heart breaks for this, that and the next thing. I'm just not necessarily responsible for curing it. But, you know, I... She she said this week she was determined to end poverty. You know, I remember in 2016 when the pledge was that um, Scotland would be the best place for a child to grow up in. Well, it's not. Um, she said that she would be judged on closing the attainment gap. She wasn't. You know, the drug deaths uh, in Scotland we have the same policies as the rest of the UK, but our de- deaths are so much worse. Yeah, I mean, so you can't keep putting it off, can you? No, you can't. And and I, I thought there was a really interesting blog by Stephen Boyle, the Auditor General, yesterday, and he talks about the the gap, the implementation gap between you know what we want to do and we aspire to do, but what we're failing to achieve. And I, I mean, I think it's a good piece, and I think it's a measured piece. I would go with, I'd be stronger than the than the Auditor General. I think there's a lot of good rhetoric, but it's not reality, and it, there's it's just a nonsensism, you know. That, that and we ought to be much more honest about these things. Um, but I do think if you look across the kind of range of public policies where we are not doing well and certainly could do much better, it's not impressive. And in a way, she's getting away with it because of two things. I think one is she's such a brilliant communicator. I mean, this is arguably the best communicator, political communicator in the UK in a long time. But also, of course, you can hide behind the Constitution. It's all about independence. And so if you can get people to think that the Constitution, independence is the most important thing, they'll put up with other things. And the 
blame. Of course, it's a blame game. It's all London's fault. And my goodness, having Boris Johnson as Prime Minister is a gift. I mean, the biggest gift to the SNP um, in its history. I mean, people, we used to think that Margaret Thatcher was a great gift to the devolution home rule cause. But actually, Boris Johnson is a bigger gift. And yet, and this is a really interesting thing, and yet support for independence, what's happened to it? It's flatlined. It's now going down. And if the trend was to continue, we'll be below where they were in 2014 in the not-too-distant future. I'm not predicting that, but I'd be worried about that if I was an SNP strategist. I mean, just kind of feeling the pulse of the nation, if you like. I mean, she's talking about a referendum 2023. Boris Johnson's bound to have a general election before that. Um, I mean, and, and as you say, independence support. I mean, I'd be really interested to see a poll on independence right now. Uh, I just wonder where things could go if if Boris jo- if the economy starts to pick up, particularly down south. Boris Johnson will see his support go up. It's difficult to know what could happen in the next few years. I mean, there are too many imponderables there. But at the present moment, to have a referendum would be a massive gamble for the SNP or for the government in London, frankly, for either. It'd be a huge gamble. It could go either way. I think it'd be a very brave, indeed, I would say foolish person that would make a prediction on the outcome of of such a referendum. And that's one of the reasons why I think this is a phony war on the referendum. And I don't think it, but it helps both of those political parties, of course, to talk it up. Because it means that if we're talking about independence, that shores up that hardline unionist support for the Conservatives in Scotland, and it shores up the SNP support um, amongst the independent supporters. So there's a kind of there's a something going on there that helps each of these parties, but it does mean that we're pushing other things to the side. And you know, this is this is a big change in the SNP because when it first came to power in 2007, its strategy was to show it could govern competently and it was going to deal with policy issues. It was going to show that it was able to run Scotland and therefore that an independent Scotland could be run really well. That was the kind of idea. Um, and it wasn't pushing the independence line. It wasn't really pushing it at that stage, not least because it knew in the polls were showing that there wasn't much support for it, but also because it was a very much minority government. Now it's kind of like it's reversed. It's now pushing independence. And it's kind of forgotten about all that good governance stuff. It talks a good game, but in terms of delivery, it's just not there. And of course, you know, in truth, parties in power eventually will run out of steam. They get tired and they, you know, they you know, you need to renew. And we haven't really seen a renewal. The transfer from Salmon to Sturgeon wasn't really a renewal. I mean, it, it, superficially it was, you know, a, a big change, but in reality it wasn't such a big change. And and I think, you know, it needs that kind of new lease of life. And there will come a point. I suspect that, that when 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 people will start to say, hold on a minute, you know, where A, we might get start to get tired of the whole independence issue. You know, I'm again going back to the 1970s as I want. I mean, people started to get bored with the whole debate on devolution. And and some would argue, I mean, the late John McIntosh in a famous piece in The Scotsman back in the late 1970s warned that people were getting bored with devolution and that you know that would lose support. That's partly what happened. I think people could start to get bored with it unless and until they see it as really relevant. And that is where your everyday bread and butter issues come in. And that's where the SNP is vulnerable. It's very vulnerable because it's not delivering there. And when you look at it, did you, I mean, I, you know, you and I discussed the GRA reform probably three or four years ago as I was, and you were one of the many men that said to me, oh, it's not really anything to do with me. I'm not discussing it. And now, obviously, it's coming back to bite lots of people. 
Is this the kind of issue that could become seminal in terms of the direction of the SNP and the future of Nicola Sturgeon? I mean, it could be. I mean, at the moment, I don't think it is because it's an issue that is of interest to a very small number of people. Um, and, and the fact that it affects a small number of people is is not important. It's, it's, well, you women, know, it, it can still be felt women, important. James. Well, except, except women, of course. I know. I was just going to <laughs> exactly. come on to that. I'm, I'm coming on to that. Okay. But absolutely. And and. But at the moment, I think the issue is is not something that resonates in people. I don't think most people are really aware of its significance. If it becomes significant in Parliament, in our media, to a much greater extent, and this is where the majority, the women, come in, if it becomes a bigger issue amongst that group of people and it's seen as a threat to a wider section of those who will be affected by it, then then there's there's, there's potentially trouble ahead. I, I I don't know if that will happen. I just do do not know. But I think it's it has the potential. And you know, sometimes in politics, the things that come along and trip you up are are, are not necessarily the huge big issues. Though though, is this a big issue? Potentially. Um, so I yeah, I take your point. I mean, I I do I do think it has it has um has the possibilities of really causing difficulties, but I think initially it'll be internal to the SNP, as it has been. If you were able to imagine yourself kind of 10, 15 years' time and you were writing the history of the SNP right now, where would this sit, do you think? Where would this particular moment in time sit? I think where we are at the moment is, we for the SNP, it's been treading water for, for a number of years and it's in danger of treading water while the tide is going out. And I think, you know, it's going through the motions, but actually the tide is going out and, and it's going to have to start getting its act together and it's going to have to start working harder. And particularly on just everyday competence, bread and butter issues. If it fails to do that, you know, it will miss this chance. And I, you know, I'm not suggesting if it was to miss a chance, it wouldn't have another one. These issues keep coming back, you know, um, but it, it, it could do so. If it runs into real difficulty during this parliament, I'm not saying it will, but if it was, then I think some people will look back and think, God, this is like 1992 for the Tories, when the Tories won that election, John Major was elated and such like, and then, you know, many Tories afterwards thought, I wish we'd lost the election. We wouldn't have had to go through this long period in opposition. So, you know, if, you know, if, if they fail, you know, at some point, then there'll be a reckoning, there'll be internal strife, and they'll have to come through that, and that can take... Many years when governments and parties in government fail, collapse, it can be a very painful experience. They look inwards and so on. We're not there yet. We're not near that for the SNP. But I would be, if I was a strategist, again, if I was a strategist for the SNP, I'd be worried about that. And I'd be thinking, we've got to make sure that doesn't happen. And it comes back to that point about the need for renewal. Um, and it needs to be from within. I mean, you know, you kind of look to another political part of the Greens for, for, for your renewal. Oh God, mention of John Major, you see, I'm now seeing Nicola Sturgeon with her vest tucked into her pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's for our older readers. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, are you in any way optimistic about our politics right now? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. Uh, um, um, I'm pretty pessimistic about our politics. I think um, I, I, I see some signs of hope for sure, but I do I do fear that we, we, we're we in a kind of politics we, which is not what the Scottish Parliament was intended to be about. It was supposed to be about sharing power between government, parliament and people. And what we're actually seeing is that government has been grabbing power, 
from Parliament. Parliament is now much less powerful than it was supposed to be. The people, and particularly local government, have been disempowered. This is not what we were supposed to see. We have taken on the worst aspects of the Westminster system, the adversarial politics, the kind of dreadful, un, you know, unhelpful kind of politics that you see at PMQs and FMQs. What's the difference? I mean, the one thing we did to 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 make ourselves be different, that was what we were supposed to be doing, was to copy Prime Minister's questions. How absurd was that? How absurd was that? And I think, you know, we, we really need to try and get away from all of that. And, and, and also, we've got to start facing up to our, our problems. I was at a conference earlier today, and David Edgerton, who's a, a very eminent um, historian, has written on, on the UK economy, and he has long argued that one of the problems with the UK is it doesn't face up to itself. It's a middling power. It's not a major power. And I totally agree with that. I think Scotland has a similar problem with the myth that we tell ourselves that needs to be confronted. We love to think that we're better, more progressive, and that we care. But if that's true, let's see some evidence of it in our public policy. That's why I'm a wee bit pessimistic, because I don't see it. Um, Hopefully, hopefully somebody will come along, or somebody's, and prove me wrong. 